Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Kara Bradley, it's taken a while to set this podcast up, but we're finally here. Um, I'd originally connected to you when I wanted to set up some flow states training for a corporate audience. And through that conversation, I'll be forever thankful because you introduced me to Georgia Ellis, who in turn introduced me to Steve Brophy and Benny Wallington, three brilliant people, all of whom have appeared on this podcast. So thank you, Kara, very much for those introductions. I subsequently followed your work and I was interested in the work you'd done in flow, meditation, gut brain health, uh, and now in the not to be whispered world of menopause. Um, You're also an author, an expert in mind body wellness, and you've been a professional skater. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. And I'm so, so it warms my heart to know that you have connected with some of my favorite people on the earth. It's amazing. It's the power of connection. And when I tried to set this podcast up, you know, you're a very busy person and I was asking for quite a lot of time. And I think it was because of the relationship with the connections that had been created from the conversation we had that you were interested and prepared to spare this time. And uh, it just goes to show the power of of connections that those three people have brought an awful lot to my life uh, and have appeared on the podcast. So fantastic. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to getting into this conversation. Yeah, well, based on that lengthy introduction, there's an awful lot we could talk about. And perhaps a good place to start would be what took you into the world of mind, body, performance and wellness? Mm. (laughs) Well, I can go way back to when I was a child. And I think for most of us as children, we have these experiences that are burned in our body and our brain and for me it was watching sunsets over the Long Island Sound and figure skating I was a figure skater and really took to it in a way that was much deeper than just competitions I wasn't a very good skater I was mediocre at best but I spent a lot of time on the ice and I learned very quickly as a child into my early teens about the mind-body connection, because back then we did something called figures. And figures is when you went out out onto a clean patch of ice, you got a little piece of ice for yourself, and you would draw figure eights for an hour on, on, on your blades. And I learned as a child, or in, like I said, a, an early teen, that when my mind was busy, I would go flat on my blade and you ideally wanted to hold an edge, outside edge or inside edge. And there was just something also, not only that. So I I learned to train myself to not think back then. Little did I know I was practicing mindfulness, you know, or or really becoming aware of the the mind-body connection. But also all of the sensory experience of it, the fog on the ice, the smell of the ice, the temperature on my skin, the sounds that the blades made, all of that just 
it, it was burnt, like I said, burned into my body. And I think we all have those experiences. And I know that uh, Mihai, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi was the founding father of flow states. You know, he said that uh, children spend most of their time in flow. So if we look back to when we were kids, we can find those times when we really had these optimal experiences because um, we all have them. And perhaps we can even help our children recognize these optimal experiences so that they can carry them forward into their adult life. That's a brilliant perspective. And and as much as I'm interested in flow, I actually hadn't thought about the role that I could have in my children's life because they're experiencing it every day. To recognize it now means you don't forget it and have to go searching for it later. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, so that led me into, and I've always been very physical as a competitive athlete, and I ran track in college. I was a mid-distance runner, and there was one pivotal moment that I had as a, uh, it was my last competitive race, and again, I was mediocre at best, and um, I had the race of my life. It was my last race, and it woke me up to the dormant potential that laid inside of me. And at 19, I thought, my gosh, what, what did I do to experience this optimal state and have this peak performance race? And how can I do it on demand? And I knew it would change my life. I mean, it was one of those, again, pivotal moments. And of course, there was back then, I'm old, right? There was no, I'm not old, but I'm older than, you know, the internet. And uh, I had to go to the library to look up how to train your mind for peak performance. And I found books on yoga and meditation. And I literally learned from books at the beginning. And then, so that took me deep into the disciplines of yoga and meditation, because what I found from these lineages is that these were practices well researched well proven practices to train because i'm an athlete so i i want a training schedule and that took me in deep deep into the energetics and the breath work and the subtleties of mind body training and uh of course for me my curiosity always led me to to purpose and the purposes, you know, of and teaching others. And so then I began coaching and training and teaching others in meditation, yoga, mental strength training, and more uh, as I, you know, and, and it continues. So at that point in time, how common was it to have to have the curiosity to look at the mind body linkage? yoga meditation mindfulness quite commonplace now you know commonly talked about but at that point coming from college track athlete and deep diving into that subject yourself how commonplace was it well i don't think it was very commonplace but it was um alive in my house and i thank my grandmother my nonna i'm italian my nonna for her curiosity, somebody who had a uh, education up to the age of 13, but she would scour books on uh, health, longevity, 
uh, meditation. I remember her always have, she had this TM book that um, transcendental meditation that was, you know, bookmarked and, 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 and worn out. So she opened me up to other possibilities of different ways to experience life. And I, and, and so that, that doorway, that gateway was open and, um, then when I had my own direct experiences, especially that track race, uh, I was curious and I felt comfortable enough exploring. That's amazing. So, so the door was open really, and there was no, um, it wasn't, it wasn't taboo in your household. In fact, it was welcomed. It was normalized. So you deep dive into it and you start to understand a little bit more about it. And then you start to talk to others about it and you introduce some of these concepts into the way you decide you want to go about a coaching career. How, how was it received by people who would not have had a similar family upbringing? Yeah, it definitely took years of skill building to not come on too strong too fast because I have a very enthusiastic personality and I just want everybody to know. But it took me, and I remember my early days of teaching yoga, oh boy, you know, I definitely was like a bull in a china shop. But over the years, and it's been over 20 years now, but I've been teaching, I started teaching actually when I was 15 years old, I started teaching figure skating. So I've had the... um you know, been building this teaching muscle for many, many years, four decades now. But it takes skill in order to meet people where they are and to carry them along gently, patiently, but also give them a push when needed to keep going, to keep leaning, to keep searching. And I think like going back to those those sunsets, as I was talking about, for some reason, as a young child, I would sit on a little rowboat and watch sunsets every night and knew that there was more to this all. I just knew there's more. There's more. How could how could this this world be so beautiful? How could it change every night? How could it be delight me so much every day? And so I have had this, you know, spark of curiosity and my entire life uh, I have been um encouraged by source to continue to share it with the world. And I, I want to share one story because it's coming through right now is when I started teaching figure skating at 15, I needed to teach in order to pay for my skating at the time. And I taught adults and I will never forget seeing these adults come on the ice for a half hour, 45 minute lesson. And here I am a 15 year old, I'm a kid. But these adults looked so old to me. And I remember they were so stiff. And I it always amazed me that after after the lesson or you know, a few minutes in, maybe 15, 20 minutes in, their center of gravity would start to drop. So they would start to get comfortable in their body. They'd get lower in their body. And the delight, their their faces would change they actually would start to look more childlike because they were more comfortable. Their nervous system relaxed. Of course, I didn't have any of this language then, but I just noticed they looked younger by the end of the lesson. And I got addicted, if you will, to 
helping them, helping people come alive, just like those, those early days when I started teaching. So you were initially coaching adults to learn figure skate, figure skating, and then you move into a, a career and you talked about coaching and teaching in, in what field was that initially? So, so after the figure skating and after graduating college, I worked, um, just for a few years at an investment bank in New York of all places. Um, I'm from New York, but you know, an investment bank. And I knew, um, I knew it wasn't for me. I started my MBA and one day I woke up and I quit it all much to my parents chagrin. <laughs> um, but I quit it all. And I went back to teaching skating and over the years that, that led me into, like I said, yoga, I found yoga meditation. So, um, I, I then moved into teaching yoga and meditation, opened a yoga studio in 2004, which was still quite early in the, in the yoga trend. And, um, I, I, uh, did that for, I, I saw my yoga studio right before COVID. So, but during that time as well, I, I, got very involved with rollerblade and um, skated professionally for for rollerblade as a sponsored skater and ran camps and events for them as well. So I taught all over the world, taught people how to rollerblade, which well, was also quite fun because I remember teaching in Japan. Of course, there was such a language barrier, but learning how to teach others a physical discipline without language, with really just connecting through the body. So again, another um, aha for me is that language isn't always needed to be able to share experience. What did professional rollerblading look like? Was it was it a speed discipline or, or was it a figure skating type discipline? What did it look like? For me, it was figure skating. So um, what was amazing about rollerblade it, rollerblading at the time coming off of figure skates is that now I didn't have to stay within the confines of a rink. I had New York city. I was living in New York city at the time. That was my, that was my, my, my palette. So, um, so I skated for team rollerblade. We were the sponsored team and we did hip hop shows on rollerblades all over the world to promote the sport. At the time, it was still new. So, uh, you know, skating under the Eiffel Tower and, uh, you know, through the, the canals of Amsterdam and, and, and freaking people out because they had no idea what we who we were on these fast moving things on our feet. So it was an absolute blast. What's your favorite hip hop track to rollerblade to? Oh, you mean music? Yeah. That's a good one. Um, at the time, hip hop was fairly new as well. So I would have to say, I don't have a specific song, but it was definitely hip hop at the time. Yeah, I can just imagine that East Coast, New York hip hop accompanying what you were oh. doing. It was, you know, just you just talking about it because I don't talk about it often. Um, it lights me up in a way. That is, uh, yeah, <laughs> makes me feel very young. How neon were the outfits? Pretty neon. I yeah, can imagine. we got a lot of that. <laughs> Big hair, neon. Yep. <laughs> so the yoga studio. Um, you say you were, you know, a little bit ahead of your time when you opened that. 
And what, what were the kind of people that came to you and what were they learning from, from what was practiced in your studio? Yeah, it's a great question. So come, <clears throat> excuse me, as an athlete, I, like I said before, I've always been attracted to training, simple disciplined training. And the yoga world was a little bit, um, chaotic at the beginning it still is honestly but um as the trend started to really rise and i was committed to teaching people a a discipline and so i over the years i'm 16 years running this business and actually today is uh the the studio's 19th anniversary so uh i transferred it over and i have a great uh, one of my teachers took it over and is doing beautifully with it. So that uh, makes me feel really good today. It's a, a great thing, great accomplishment and a great community. But what I what I built and we built as teachers over the years was a solid system of training the body and mind to uh, be present, to sense into subtleties, to be able to be adaptable and stable. So there was a real mission behind how I developed trainings and programs that was beyond becoming more flexible or, um, or, or, or contorting your body. I was never really interested in the contortion aspect or the um, more advanced poses of yoga. I was really interested in training minds through training bodies. And I almost didn't ask this question because because we could go on forever. But but as someone who really doesn't understand yoga well enough, how, how, what would be a an almost a nutshell sized description of of what yoga is? Because some people might think it's just contortion and it's just stretching. Some people will understand there's a spiritual element to it as well. And and now we're learning there's a there's a mind development element to it and there's you know many many different practices of yoga so it's hard to put it all into one box but if you're teaching someone like me who doesn't really understand it well enough how would you best describe the different kinds of yoga or, or what yoga is that's a it's a big question from a broad perspective yoga can be defined as union it's union of mind, body, breath, energy, elements, um, consciousness. So it's bringing together what we have separated. And we do that through movement, through breath, through rhythm, through attention. Um, and then it gets even more subtle. It gets more, more and more subtle. So the way that I, and I still practice, practice several days a week. I still teach, actually, uh, even though I don't own a studio anymore. Because for me, teaching yoga is a yoga practice as well. It is the practice, and, and, and it's often said, the if there's any goal of yoga, it's to settle the fluctuations of the mind and to remove obstacles to energy flow. So if we have tight hamstrings, if we have tight hips or a tight jaw, 
then there's going to be constricted energy flow, just like if your home was a mess or total, too cluttered, the energy of the home, it wouldn't feel easy. And so we want to remove the obstacles and we do that through physical movement, through breath. And we also want to settle the busy mind, the fluctuations of the mind. And that happens through connecting breath and movement through uh, deep coherent breath you know all of it. so there's so many elements to it it goes so beyond just getting a yoga butt you know? yeah definitely and it, what fascinates me about yoga and you know i know one percent of what i should know about it but the science now proves how certain yoga practices work and I'm a big fan of Andrew Huberman and he has a thing that he calls non-sleep deep rest which is really based on yoga nidra and he has all the data that shows what it does to your body when you do it but what fascinates me is yoga is an ancient practice and without brain scans without heart rate monitors without any of the tech that we have today thousands of years ago somebody realized what it could do and that ancient practice was 100% valid all the way through. And, and only now can we prove why it's valid. But people have known it for thousands of years. Yeah. And, it, and if you look back at the Yoga Sutras, which were the oral, orally translated or transmitted uh, teachings that are now in, in written form, oh, there are only three that mention the body or movement in over 200 so it's a very it's a very sophisticated practice and discipline but what what you were saying um about the science behind it and i'm a huge fan of both andrew huberman and of uh nsdr i do it uh you know maybe twice a week in the afternoon i will put on a uh, a guided practice and it really works to help me feel rested help me feel aligned and and in coherence this again going back to optimal states of experience coherence is when autonomic coherence is when our nervous system is both calm and clear it's both relaxed and alert and we can um, cultivate experiencing coherence in many ways from skiing down a mountain to to lying on your bed and doing um, you know, one of these NSDR practices. So, but getting back to the physical practice of yoga, back then, 3,000 years ago, men, mostly men, were interested in meditation, the mind training aspect of yoga. And they found that if they moved their body for a short period of time, it would open up their joints, limbs, and relax their muscles enough to be able to sit in meditation longer. So the physical practice precedes all of the mental and energetic and spiritual practices of the full yoga tradition. And they emulated the way animals moved or the way nature moved. And so you get poses like eagle, and tree and warrior and lo lotus and locust and that's how it all originated 
That makes a lot of sense because I am as tight as a drum. And when it comes to sitting <laughs> down and doing any form of meditation practice, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. So I think I need to incorporate some form of stretching and yoga into that. Yeah, and what so what what practices do, and I'll give you an example. I was the mental strength coach for a college football team, Villanova football and Villanova basketball, um, for 14 years. And we started, I started training them with yoga and meditation back in 2004, way way before most teams were were thinking about doing this. And I had to teach a very, very simple physical discipline because these guys, especially the football players, I had 90 football players at one time and they had bodies of all different sizes. If you think of a linebacker and a running back and a tight end and a wide receiver, all very different physical types. So I would teach them a very simple physical discipline that built physical stability balancing, uh, focusing, you know, very simple um, forms, if you will, because I wanted them to feel successful yet challenged in the practice. But then what I would do, and this was such huge learning for me as a meditation teacher, is I didn't sit them down. I actually helped them to practice the mind training aspect of yoga in movement. Because as athletes, athletes don't want to sit. I mean, we are we are born to move. We feel our best in movement. So why not train an athlete to to become more mentally focused, aware in the in movement? And that's what we did. And uh, it was phenomenal, just phenomenal work. I had a couple of national championships. Um, they actually, Sports Illustrated, a big uh, sports magazine here in the U.S., did an article on uh, Villanova basketball because they won a couple of national championships about their training. And I remember uh, the strength coach said, I didn't want to tell him about what we were doing back then because um, you're my secret weapon. So uh, it was quite a, a fun ride for me as a coach and a teacher. It was really one of my uh, most rewarding experiences it feels like a, it was a secret weapon at that point in time do you ever keep in touch yeah. with any of the athletes that you worked with i do i do they will reach out to me on social media every once in a while and you know to know that what you said to a you know 19 year old young man you know 10 years ago is something that he still is curious about i remember when you talked about the power of now or, you know, how um, one thing I would repeat to them over and over again is that a distracted mind has no power. A directed mind has limitless potential. And so if we can learn to direct our mind, especially under pressure, under competition or whatever it is you need to uh, nail at the time, if you can learn to direct your mind, you will be your 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 possibilities are limitless and this is what i learned back at that race uh um when i was 19 so um i i just love you know we we don't know the words that we speak today how they will ripple out and impact the world and it's why we can never stop 
never stop. All of us, we're all teachers and models for, for millions. Going back to that day when you ran that race and it was your final race and it was the best one you ever did. And then you went and subsequently did lots of research and lots of learning. Did you ever unpack and work out what the ingredients were that brought you to that point on that day? Because we've all experienced the perfect event, whatever it is, whether it's a sporting event, whether it's writing something, whether it's being in a debate and the words are flowing really easily. But it's hard to replicate it if you don't know what the ingredients were. Oh, I absolutely dissected it. In fact, I write about it in my book. It's the first chapter is the whole experience. So what happened to me was I knew it was going to be my last race. I was headed into a foot surgery and um, my my track career was going to be over, which was fine. And like I said, I was a, a mid-distance runner. I ran the 800 meters, which was grueling. And uh, I went off on my own before my race, which was unusual for me. I wasn't super disciplined. I usually would hang around and goof off with my teammates before coach said, you know, go warm up. But this time I did something different and I went off on my own. And again, I was 19. So here's a 19 year old mind. And I did a slow warm up jog, very slow, just jogging. And I started to talk to myself and I made the agreement to myself to go for my personal best. I said to myself, you know, why not just go out on top? It's your last race. Why not just beat your personal record? It's been a while. So I started to repeat to myself as I did this warm up jog, personal best, personal best. And I don't know how long that went on for, but it was at least 10 minutes. So here we have, now that I can look back at it, we have a rhythm. I'm jogging very slowly. My breath is coming into uh, a rhythm with my body, right? And this will help us to our nervous system to relax. So I'm coming into autonomic coherence just by jogging in place, you know, not in place, but jogging slowly. Now I'm repeating a mantra, personal best, personal best, which is focusing my attention. And I walked onto the track and I remember everything from that moment. Everything was heightened. My awareness was heightened, sensory awareness. I remember the track was bright red, which is unusual. Mm. It was a May day, clear blue sky, a smell of spring in the air here in the U.S. I remember the gun going off and I remember seeing the puff of smoke. That's how vivid and how present I was in that moment. And uh, as I've learned from my friend, uh, Stephen Cutler, uh, flow follows focus. So here I was in an extremely focused state that I had somehow gotten myself into very, you know, haphazardly. I didn't plan this. And then the race goes off two laps. First lap, I don't remember much. The second lap, I remember passing our best mid-distance runner. She was number one on the team. And the only thought I had was, wow, she must be having a really bad day 
because how could I be passing her? And all I can remember in those last 200 meters was feeling like I was floating. I felt so strong. And it always gives me chills when I talk about this because it's so, again, burned into my, my nervous system. I crossed the finish line in third place. My teammates jumped on me. I had no idea what happened until I looked up at the clock and I had shaved six seconds off my PR. Six seconds in the 800 is ridiculous. Like you might beat your PR by, you know, two hundredths of a second, six whole seconds. And I sat there in disbelief. And I remember thinking, the first thing I thought was I did it. I, I beat my PR. And within a breath, that thought flipped to, are you kidding me? I think I might've used some explicits as well. You waited your whole career to, to run this race? Like I went from mediocre to elite in one race. And I thought, uh, I, 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 how, how did this happen? How could you have waited? And then I thought, if I could learn how to do this in every area of my life, I will be unstoppable. And that was it. And I think we have these moments. And if we could all look back, you know, all of us think back to a peak moment, and it doesn't have to be in athletics. It could be a peak moment with a, um, you know, <laughs> a dying loved one. It could be with a moment where you stood up for yourself and you claimed your power or you uh, protected somebody. Who knows? We have those moments and they are really, really powerful. So this has led me into a lifelong pursuit of understanding human potential and how to awaken dormant, latent capacities within us. I think what it's made me realize going through that story is is when you you were clearly in in a flow state when you know when when that happened and it's not so much that flow gives you extra power extra juice extra ability it removes all of the stuff you put in the way of allowing you to perform to the best, whether it be subconscious worry, making your muscles tighten, you know, marginally, which slows you down or reduces your stride by a millimeter for every stride you take around at 800 meters. So if you can get get out of the way of yourself and allow yourself to be as free as possible, how much extra is in you that you don't even realize? Oh. 100%. And understanding flow states now, thanks to the work of Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a seminal book, Flow, in 1990. And that blew my world apart because now there was science behind what I was talking about because I didn't couldn't really talk about this with many people. Uh, and then, you know, later on, we have the work of, you know, Stephen Cutler, Jamie Wheel, and, and others that have given us amazing science behind these optimal experiences. But what I experienced on the track that day was something called transient hypofrontality, which happens during flow states. And it's a chemical reaction. So body, mind, right? So it's a neurochemistry, neuroanatomy shift where your prefrontal cortex powers down. So now that inner critic goes quiet, 
which is really, as I know now in my life, my inner critic, as it happens for most of us, holds me back. You know, even when I was a skater, you know, having trouble with my axle, with my with my double jumps, my double lutz, my double, you know, flips. Those there was something mentally that I felt held me back from nailing those jumps. I had the physical capacity, no doubt about it. So I have experienced this as an average athlete, you know, average student, um, most of my young life and now having skills, the meditation, the physical practices to help me flip that switch, um, I'm able to access so much more. And so are you. And so is every single one of us. So from that initial learning and understanding and, and the work that you did, you actually went really deep with flow. And, you know, you didn't just read the books of Kotler and Wheel. You actually became part of that cohort. What did, what did that look like for the time that you were deeply involved there? Oh, it was great fun. So much fun because we would gather at these flow camps um, as adults and and practice and play and experience all of the flow or most of the flow triggers. You know, some of the deep embodiment, right, which yoga is certainly a deep embodiment practice. And a lot of my flow states are through that door of deep embodiment but then there were high consequences we had giant swings and uh doing things that really tested your ability to face fear um and and group flow and the the um the social aspect and the dancing and the ecstatic experiences. So for me to be in this community of like-minded people, like we spoke about earlier, Georgia and Benny and Rob and so many others, Claire in the, in, in, in your neck of the woods um, that, you know, we were all just searching for different, ways to experience and we played off of each other with such delight and such um, enthusiasm it was truly uh, life-changing and as a consequence of that I think when we spoke before we recorded this podcast you know your future perhaps looked at going deeper and deeper into this world um, you know taking that story on the road and training people but of course, the pandemic happened not long after that, which caused a bit of a reset. Definitely. Absolutely. I was doing a lot of speaking, corporate speaking on flow states at work, helping organizations, helping executives. Again, you know, still working with athletes and understanding how to train for flow, how to understand it, experience it, and then apply it when needed on demand. So it didn't happen just by accident, like my race. And you get to the end of your career or your you know, athletic pursuits and you know, you nail it on your last race or your last presentation. So I had been doing a lot of that. And then of course the pandemic hit. Uh, and then as I went quiet for a few years, I had just sold my yoga studio. And so I was in a huge transition and um, I started to learn more about the gut-brain connection. And this lit me up because it was another layer or another piece of the puzzle. 
And I'm happy to, to share more about mm-hmm. what I've learned there, because this, again, you know, the pursuit of excellence, if you will, of mastery is not, there's no one direction, there's not one trigger. It is a multifaceted gem. And we want to continue to explore different facets because it's just going to make the whole gem shine brighter. And so understanding uh, gut brain was like a deeper level of understanding the body mind connection in a whole different way uh, that, that again, blew my mind. What were some of the big revelations when you started to dip into that subject? So the gut microbiome and the and the study of the gut microbiome is fairly new when it comes to research. Although the Ayurvedic, the yogis have been studying this and the traditional Chinese medicine practitioners have known this thousands of years. Uh, Hippocrates said, you know, 2000 years ago, all disease begins in the gut. But now Western science is starting to recognize that the microbiome, the gut microbiome, which is an ecology of bacteria, viruses, and other non-human entities, um, are all functioning to dictate much of what's happening in the other systems of our body. My interest is in what's happening in the brain. So what I've learned from flow science is that uh, during a flow state, there is this cascade of neurotransmitters that come online to shift our brain, to create this um, powering down of the prefrontal cortex, the opening of the side brains, the lateral brains. Um, You know, all of this has to do with what's happening chemically. What we're learning in the gut brain science is that a lot of these neurotransmitters are produced in the gut as byproducts of the bacterial strains down there. So, when and I said and I had this discussion with with Stephen Cutler. Oh, it's got to be. It was right before the pandemic, about three, uh, almost four years ago. And I said, "What if flow begins in the gut? What if it is what we're eating, and how we're caring for our gut microbiome that is helping to produce these serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, and other neurotransmitters that then are signaled up to the brain. And so the gut and the brain communicate through the nervous system and primarily the immune system. So of course, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the immune system is top top of the chart, you know, talk, talk, talked about. And so when we can um, improve our gut integrity through food, through stress management, through managing pharmaceuticals and environmental toxins. So those are the four ways we can we can really help our gut microbiome to flourish and then help to um, open up the channels of communication through um, the immune system. So boosting immunity, but also decreasing inflammation. So if you think about inflammation is like um, static in our body. So if we have um, excess inflammation or systemic inflammation, the the, uh, communication channels may be like a, a crowded highway, a traffic jam, if you will. So we're just not getting the signaling. And then the nervous system as well, the vagus nerve, if we are in nervous system dysregulation or chronic stress, there's going to be a jam up in the highway channels. And so that communication may feel more like 3D 
instead of 5D. We want 5D body brain communication. So if we can get down to the gut level and improve there through quality food, stress management, supplementation, high grade bacteria, you know, probiotics. And there are now, we have learned through science, specific bacteria that do specific things that can help improve um, serotonin production or reduce cortisol or reduce inflammation. So we, we can now help to get very, very strain specific in the gut microbiome to help boost brain function. So of course, for me, this is like a completely new territory. And, uh, you know, I have, I've been on a deep dive there for, for now, four years, five years. And that might explain why adults find it harder to get into a flow state than children, because it, it's, it's not unreasonable to assume that adults treat their gut biome a little bit more recklessly than a child might. Some more blockers. Um, one of the interesting things you mentioned there was the different strains of the bacteria that are in your gut. And, and when we spoke previously, you recommend that I read a book and, and, you know, I started reading that and it talked about the different strains because so many people will, will go to the supermarket and they'll go, if you've got a, a rudimentary, rudimentary knowledge, you go, I, I need some good bacteria in my gut. So I'll go and buy that bottle of kefir and, and I've, I've heard that kefir is a good thing. So that's what I'm going to drink. And that's what I'll do. But I don't know enough about the strains that are in that kefir to know whether it's the right stuff or not. How how can we simplify that for people? Because the, the, the minute you get a lot of words in some kind of bacteria and it becomes hard to pronounce, it's, it's then really difficult to remember which is a good one and which isn't. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's the super question. So, you know, I always start with food, food first. And the cleanest uh, diet that we can have and with the most diversity of plants. So a plant rich diet. And I think the book you're referring to is mental fitness by Dr. Sean Talbot. Mm, yes. Another, uh, uh, really brilliant man who is a friend, uh, as well. And he created something called the mental fitness diet, which is really based on the Mediterranean diet, but with, uh, emphasis on, uh, improving the gut brain access. And so it's really a diversity of plants and vegetables that will help to reduce inflammation and increase gut, um, the diversity of gut bacteria in your gut. So we want a lot of good and we want to decrease the bad. And so um, it's always food first. And then you can, and, and there are certain supplements um, and one in particular that I have been um that really made a big difference in the brain fog I experienced four years ago uh, in what I call, you know, menopause brain fog and what I've been talking about as of late. But um, there are three specific strains that have been clinically validated in humans to help to boost uh, mental wellness. So we can um, now we're, we're seeing strains that can help or have some kind of correlation with ADHD, autism, Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's, depression, anxiety. I mean, it is mind blowing what, you know, what we're learning and how really the gut microbiome is this motherboard for, um, for so many of our current ailments. So if we can start to look down at the gut 
And we can also improve our gut integrity through sleep, better sleep, better movement. I mean, it's all common sense. So it's not like we have to go out and buy a bunch of stuff to start. And our kids, by the way, their microbiomes are much more easily adaptable. So if you support them with some lifestyle changes and perhaps some very simple supplementation, we can make some quick changes in kids. Kids will have really quick results because their microbiome is changing much more quickly than, than us slow moving adults. And thankfully it's much, it's much more is known about it now. So you, so you went deep into gut brain and then you mentioned menopause. And I think mm -hmm. possibly for maybe 12 months, you've been talking about this more and more, but perhaps not so much before that. And this is a subject that you've gone deep into. And it's one that I really wanted to talk about because for, for a few reasons, but one, the contrarian in me goes, well, not a lot of people want to talk about it and perhaps not a lot of men want to talk about it, but I think it's important. And I think it's important because, you know, everyone has a woman in their life that is or will go through menopause soon. And many men, perhaps most, and lots of women possibly don't really understand what's happening during the menopause. And you talked about brain fog and you've talked in your content about career impact and how it changes how you're viewed or how you perform in the workplace. So there's, there's the whole avenue of how do you manage that and how do you bring yourself back on track? And then there's the whole avenue of how do you be a good leader in a, in a scenario where team members are going through the menopause? Um, so it's a subject I'm fascinated to learn more about. Mm, yes, it, it is. It's what's lighting me up now. And uh, oof, boy, we can go a number of ways. So I will say that um, I experienced menopause brain fog pretty bad. I didn't realize it until I came out of it. And what helped me to move through that brain fog was cleaning up the gut, my gut and my gut brain access. And it specifically started when I started to learn about uh, simple protocols that I could do both in lifestyle, but also in supplementation. And once I broke through the brain fog, and it did, didn't take very long, by the way, which is amazing, you know, an amazing thing for most of us to understand that we can um, change our, our mental experience and our perception of the world pretty quickly when we make some simple changes in our lives, uh, lifestyle and, and perhaps some supplementation. So once I was out of the brain fog, I realized, holy crap, like, where have I been for the last four years? I felt like I had been living underwater. Of course, I was still in the world teaching and um, learning, but I just didn't have the, the spark, the zest, the enthusiasm, the confidence that I'd always had. And when I started to understand that the changes that happened to our brain on menopause another mind blown, you know, my, my mind was blown again. And there goes Kara down the rabbit hole once again, because this is what I do. And I started to understand. And, and here's the thing is the research is far and few between around, especially our brains on menopause and, uh, most women, 70% of women will experience some type of brain fog. The brain changes, um, women will start to experience brain changes due to fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone 
five years before they may experience a hot flash or any other one of the physical symptoms of menopause. So women in their late 30s, early 40s could start to feel some of the brain fog. And that can include feeling confused, mentally fatigued, inability to focus, irritable, panic, anxiety, depression, or, or constant sadness. Um, they may experience memory issues, inability to speak clearly, kind of feeling clumsy, out of sorts. And this is when women start to feel like, who am I? This isn't the me I've always known myself to be. And most of us just don't realize that estrogen is known as our memory molecule. And we have loads of estrogen receptors in our brain. So when estrogen starts to fluctuate in perimenopause, which again could be early 40s, mid 40s, starts to nosedive towards menopause and flatlines for the rest of our lives, we can, our brains will change and our ability to function or cognitive functioning will change. And this to me is, um, I mean, it is such a pivotal moment for women to understand and men to understand, wow, um, things are changing here. So, and, and, and the same goes for progesterone because progesterone changes can make us moody, irritable, um, stressed, anxious, panicky. Um, so again, those progesterone receptors in our brain and the, throughout the rest of our body are creating um, instability, uncertainty, fluctuations, mood swings that are real, you know, and we're no longer um, what I want to scream from the rooftops is um, we have at, 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 the, at right now over a billion women over the age of 40, women that are in our prime, you know, women in our 40s, 50s, 60s, like we are just ready to go. We've got wisdom. We've got life experience. We have so much to share with the world. And if we're being taken out of the game, out of our work, out of our potential, coming back to potential, right? Out of our ability to, to really um, share our genius with the world, then everybody's suffering. The, the world is suffering. So we've got to get women back online. We got to get them feeling better. And the first thing to do is educate. And so what I've been focusing on is education, uh, not only on social media and through writing and, and uh, podcasts, but also in the workplace. Is just uh, sitting women down in the workplace and men, you know, executives, leaders, managers, anybody, and saying, listen, there's going to be changes, but there are things we can do about it. And again, it always starts with lifestyle, uh, but then there are also other things that we can explore. So I'm pumped up again, ready to go. Because <laughs> one of my questions was going to be how how do we take this forward and how do we normalize the discussion and and make it a topic that's talked about and make it a topic that's well understood and then get to a point where how how does an organization take any organization that thinks they're doing well from a diversity equity and inclusion perspective but perhaps aren't facing into menopause at all big blind spot for them hasn't been researched in the past hasn't been talked about in the past how do they cleverly and proactively help manage that situation because because nobody ever wants a situation where your boss pulls you into a room and let's say your boss is a man and you go oh you weren't you weren't very good in that meeting Kara I think you might be in pre-menopause that's not the right answer but but there but there perhaps is an answer that's better than just awareness and talking about it yeah and there's a lot of discussion going on right now because one in ten women 
are retiring early to, because they feel like they can't function at work anymore. So that's not good. And many, many women just feel very alone in in how they're feeling and the changes that they're feeling. So it, it is, you know, where I feel like there's a doorway in that is, if you will, a little bit um, easier to talk about in the workplace is how menopause impacts the brain, right? So then you're, you're not getting, because yes, you I agree with you, you know, in fact, my husband said to me, you know, as I was beginning this, this next chapter of my life as um, a menopause performance coach, you know, he said, do you have to use the word menopause? <laughs> you know? And I laughed. I'm like, yes, I do. That's the point. Like we've got to normalize this word and not make it uh, some taboo word. This is actually an extraordinary transition that women are going through where they're stepping into leadership power. But if we can't understand how to navigate the changing brain on menopause, then a lot of women are just going to go silent and that's not good either. So, um, so a couple of things, uh, Dr. Claire Warger wrote a book in 1999 called Menopause and the Mind. And um, I can't find much about her research now, but that book was really pivotal because she talks about these hormonal misconnects that happen in our brain when hormones start to fluctuate and then nosedive and flatline during this menopause journey. And so if we could start to talk about, you know, misconnections and, and, and recognize that these things do happen and there are things that we can do about it and, very, very simply, you know, I think for me, it was so empowering to just recognize, oh my God, I'm not losing my mind. I'm not going crazy. I'm not, you know, getting old. I'm not, I'm not aging out of my job. This is a neurochemical, uh, hormonal issue that I have power over. There are choices and solutions and, um, I just need tools. That's all I need tools. And so if all of us recognize there are tools that we can use. So in the workplace, I believe it is awareness, first awareness of what's happening and changes in our brain. Because listen, we talk about mindfulness. I've done a ton of mindfulness talks to organizations. I've done a lot of optimal performance and flow state talks. Let's talk about, you know, amplifying the mind on menopause in a way that's just very casual like that. It doesn't have to be, we don't have to tiptoe around it anymore. That that one in 10 statistic is quite stark. To take any cohort of people and say, every year we'll take 10% of, of that cohort out of the economy is a stark statistic. You know, the, the productivity losses alone to the economy are something that should make people sit up and take note. Absolutely. The Mayo Clinic... Um, just did a huge study on this um, where their statistics are are mind-blowing, how much money we're losing due to women not being as productive, taking sick days, not feeling good about themselves, um, aging, feeling like they're aging out, retiring early. Um, you know, one thing that I love to share is that um, orcas, as otherwise known as killer whales, right, orcas, um, the female population of orcas are uh, go through menopause. So there's only um, five or six species known 
to go through menopause in the world. And five of them are whales and one of them are humans. And uh, part of the reason is that most women, most female species will die as they approach uh, post-reproductive. But female orcas will live on average of 90 years old, where male orcas live on average of 30. So what happens when female orcas become post-reproductive is that they break off into a new pod and they become the natural leaders. They are the leaders. And so this really gives me, it inspires me, it empowers me to continue to encourage women um, that they are stepping into a time of power now. And um, I believe, I will say that um, we are uh, really uh, playing with a, a with a half a deck of cards in our in our culture, if we do not do everything possible to empower women over 40, 50, 60, 70 to be in their power, because we can be the tipping point in in shifting the energy, the the um the way that we lead, the way that we care in this world. It can be the tipping point. I, I imagine, you know, a billion women, a half a billion women that feel more in their game, on their feet, in their potential. Um, it, it could be a tremendous turning point in our world. And it's really what gives me the inspiration to do what I do. Absolutely. It, it's bad enough with the way the, the population bubble is moving along. It's bad enough that we're going to lose talent from organizations and the economy. To add this on top is going to have even more of an impact. So, you know, I'm a man, I've got female relatives, female friends, female colleagues. What can I do to help? That's a great question. And thank you for asking. I think conversation. I think conversation. And, you know, if the first word, you don't have to say menopause as the first word because we don't know because most women are just not aware, but you can ask, we can start talking about aging and aging and stepping into our power as we're aging instead of um, uh, getting slower and older. Stephen Cutler said in his new book, Nar Country, which I absolutely loved, he said, um, aging, aging is a fact of life, old is a mindset. And so we can just start to have the discussion of how are you, you know, how's it feel to be 45? How's it feel to be 55 as a woman in the world? I mean, just opening the door to that can, can be a breath of fresh air for women to talk about. And what I'm encouraging women to do is to start asking your sisters, your mothers, your grandmothers, your um, even your colleagues, questions about how they're feeling, how their menopause experience is. Are they experiencing any symptoms? Sharing it like we as women share our experience of uh, pregnancy or our experience of PMS. You know, we're very, we talk about that without problem. We just haven't, it's not been in the social norm to talk about menopause. And I think once women start opening up about it, it'll bring men into the conversation. So that's, I think what you can do is just be open and willing to have conversation. Brilliant. And, and I hope that this conversation opens the door for other conversations and other conversations and other conversations. I hope so too. 
Brilliant. I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm going to be looking at your content with interest. Uh, I'm going to be really interested in how you start to package this for your corporate clients. And like I say, I mentioned DE&I earlier. I, I think the human resources departments and the departments looking after that, you know, should be very interested in what's happening in this space as well. Yeah, and there's some really interesting things happening um, in in healthcare, providing healthcare options to women. And where I'm specifically interested is in helping women upgrade mindset around menopause, upgrade their lifestyle practices so that they can be in peak performance for the rest of their lives. Brilliant. Wouldn't that be good? Mm. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me.